Let's open our Bibles. The precious, inspired, and preserved words of the living God in our language Amen. to Second Peter chapter 2. Second Peter chapter 2. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. Right. This Bible that we have in our hands truly furnishes us unto everything that we need as the children of God in this world. We have come to the fourth verse of Second Peter chapter 2, and we have a long sentence. And this long sentence runs from the beginning of verse 4 to the middle of verse 10. And so we just have one sentence to cover in this second assembly. And I read this one sentence to you. For if God spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved unto judgment and spared not the old world, but saved Noah the eighth person, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood upon the world of the ungodly and turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them with an overthrow making them an example unto those that after should live ungodly, and delivered just Lot, vexed with the filthy conversation of the wicked. For that righteous man dwelling among them, in seeing and hearing, vexed his righteous soul from day to day with their unlawful deeds. The Lord knoweth how to deliver the godly out of temptations." and to reserve the unjust unto the day of judgment to be punished. But chiefly, them that walk after the flesh in the lust of uncleanness and despise government. May the Lord bless the reading of His Word. That is the full sentence given to us by the Holy Ghost. The fact that we have verse divisions that are somewhat different than the conclusion of that sentence, I don't care. They are useful little address system that was given just 500 years ago for us to be able to find verses more easily. I should say just 300 years ago. For us to be able to find verses more easily, they don't change the meaning here. We want to end with the fact that this sentence is describing two things. God is able to deliver the godly, out of judgments that he sends. And God will certainly judge the wicked when he sends his judgment. And he identifies there at the very end two categories of sins that particularly offend him. Uncleanness and despising authority, especially civil authority. So we've got this long sentence. This long sentence has three examples of judgment in verses 4, 5, and 6. And then in verses 7 through 9, verses 7 and 8 had the deliverance of Lot. Verse 9 explains what has just been covered in that God certainly judges the wicked, but He's able to deliver the righteous while He judges the wicked. And then He gives two examples of sin that offend Him. 
sins that we want to think about before we finish today and walk out of here convinced and convicted that we want to avoid those two categories. Verse 9 is the key. The Lord knoweth how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust unto the day of judgment to be punished. The first three verses have told us that swift destruction is going to come upon false teachers and their hearers. It has told us in the last part of verse 3 that their judgment now of a long time lingereth not. It was ordained for them before the world began, and for 4,000 years it hadn't happened. But the Apostle Peter wrote that it is not lingering. It's coming. And that damnation that's coming upon them that these ungodly men were foreordained to is also coming. That judgment is coming. Let me give you three examples of it, Peter is writing. But let me show you that God is able to deliver from His judgments Whether they're in this world or it's the eternal judgment, He's able to deliver godly people that will live godly. And while we look at Lot and say that he wasn't very godly, and he wasn't, he's called a just man here, and he's called a righteous man twice. We want to be better than Lot. And we want to prepare ourselves that when the fire and the judgment falls around us on this nation or upon the world, that we are saved because we are in the category of the godly of verse 9. By the godly lives that we've been living. We've been told before we get to this chapter how to make our calling and election sure and eight specific marks of a godly man. We should remember those things. But let's get into what's before us. Damnation has just been mentioned. It is not slumbering. God's damnation of this world and of wicked men is not asleep. It is coming. And chapter 3 is going to be about it coming. With a fervent heat that's going to melt all the elements. And in light of that fact, what kind of lives we ought to be living. That's the same lesson really that is here in front of us. Except our overall context of chapter 2 is false teachers. Judgment's coming upon them. Judgment's coming upon the world. There's going to be a day of judgment. And wicked men will be punished. We can be delivered. We can be saved. The Lord knows how. That's comforting. The Lord knows how. Lot was saved even though Lot didn't deserve it. He was saved for Abraham's sake. There were angels that were saved. Noah and his family were saved, though we don't know of any reason why seven of them were saved, except for Noah. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Mrs. Noah didn't. The three sons didn't. Their three wives didn't. The Bible never says a commending thing about them. It's Noah. But the Lord knows how. Let's be such in our families, in our own personal lives, and in our church that the Lord will save us. This is sound doctrine that is no longer endured. Everyone knows these Bible stories, but these Bible stories don't belong on a flannel graph board. These Bible stories don't belong in a Bible story book. Unless the truth were told, we need to be reminded of these things constantly. Peter said, as long as I'm alive, I'm going to remind you of such things. And so I do so today. The Bible says, in a prophecy from Paul to Timothy, in 2 Timothy 4.3, 
The time will come when they will no longer endure sound doctrine. No one wants to hear about angels being thrown out of heaven for pride and ambition. No one wants to hear that the entire world was suffocated by water. No one wants to hear that sodomites and their families and their children and senior citizens in Sodom and Gomorrah were burned up. They don't want to hear that. They hate that message. The time will come when they will no longer endure sound doctrine, but will heap to themselves teachers having itching ears. And they shall turn their ears away from the truth and be turned unto fables. And in so many pulpits today, fables are going down. This is sound doctrine. These are real events that took place as an example of a real event that's coming, and we're in between them, and we should change our lives to be ready for that coming event. Lord, help us to that end. I am so overwhelmed, I wish there was someone else to preach this message that I could sit and shout amen to every right statement that was made because I don't know how to communicate with your souls the gravity and the solemnity and the severity of God's judgment that came in the past and that is coming in the future. There is such a disconnect between these verses and what we see and feel and hear around us. I sat with my wife yesterday morning on the porch looking at the beautiful blue sky and the beautiful green foliage and how it has just exploded and a beautiful Japanese maple and a beautiful magnolia tree and the world rushing back and forth to and fro. Everybody has money. Everybody has time. It's the weekend. Let's go have some fun. They're lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God. And it's all around us, in our houses, on what used to be called the boob tube, Hollywood's pulpit, the television, whatever you want to call it, on the internet. Everything is a click away. You can engage in any form of uncleanness or despising government that you want to with a click of your mouse and your smart television that now knows your mouse. It's all there. There's nothing to tell us judgment's coming. Even in the Lord's providence of the weather. His weather is a witness of His goodness. The weather is a witness of His kindness. And we sit there and we were just basking in it and yet overwhelmed with this message right here. No one wants to think this. They just rush on on the treadmill of life pushing the up arrow. A little faster. A little faster. I want to make a little bit more money. I want to have a bigger house. I want to be more popular. I want to get higher in the organization. I want to have more fun. I want more time off. I want to travel. I want pleasure. Push, push, push for more and more of those things. And the Lord's coming to burn this place up. Does any, do we believe it? There's a disconnect. What I mean by a disconnect is, you wouldn't want to hear what I said to Sherry because I was illustrating it to her by a metaphor. I talked to her the way that Asaph was thinking in Psalm 73 when he said, all of this is in vain. I said, Sherry, I can't get up and preach that tomorrow. That's not true. You know that's not true. Sherry, look at that blue sky. That blue sky is so gentle and so beautiful and comforting and warm and loving. And God put that sky there. He can't be doing this kind of stuff. 
we have to make a choice by faith, don't we? Amen. That we're going to believe the Bible and we're going to stand against everyone that never ever preaches on a passage like this. I can promise you that Joel is not unloading on the city of Houston this morning of what God did to Sodomites in Sodom and Gomorrah, what He did to the entire world in the flood and describe it, and what He did to the angels and what He's about to do to Houston. You know, someone may say, why do you pick on Joel so much? It's very easy. Joel has made himself the nation's pastor. How can I help it? The nation considers Joel their pastor. If Joel's the example of America's pastor now, I'm going to pick on that example because I'm supposed to. The Bible tells New Testament ministers to name names and to call out false teachers and to identify them. And so we do it. And he's a great example. I can promise you that he isn't saying anything like this passage teaches. Are we, it doesn't matter what he does, the Lord's going to take care of him, but are we willing to make the connect that though there's a blue sky, though there are white puffy clouds, though our foliage and our flowers have exploded with his blessing, there's a God coming that is going to burn up every rose bush and destroy every green thing and level this earth and melt it with fervent heat and remake it and we will possess it. That's the truth of the gospel. The truth of the gospel is not just Jesus dying on the cross. It's Jesus dying on the cross to save us from what's coming. Because the Bible says he died on the cross to save us from the wrath that is coming. There is wrath coming. So we have three examples. We have one sentence, three examples quickly. Verse 4 are the angels. For if God spared not, look at that word spare. It's in verse 4. It's in verse 5. For if God spared not, we think of God and they preach God. And when we think of God that He's always sparing, He's not always sparing. He spares sometimes. We're thankful for this sparing. Romans chapter 8 and verse 32. Who spared not His own Son, but delivered Him up for us all, how shall He not with Him also freely give us all things? God does not spare forever. His wrath burns and it will break forth. It is called the long-suffering of God, but it has not happened yet. And His long-suffering is for us to repent and to get right and to live the godly lives that we should. And chapter 3 will teach us that in verse 9 and in verse 19 very carefully. Verse 9 and verse 15 of chapter 3. For if God spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved unto judgment. If God did that, and if God did what's in verse 5, and if God did what's in verse 6, and if God saved Lot in verses 7 and 8, then the Lord knows how to deliver us out of what's coming, and we should live godly in light of it, especially in two sins that he'll mention. If God spared not, he didn't spare the angels. Lucifer said, according to Isaiah chapter 14 and verse 12, I will be like the Most High. That is pride, that is ambition. Korah tried it against Moses and was swallowed up alive with his family. Lucifer, the angel, the anointed cherub of God, the most intelligent created being in the universe, had pride and ambition. 1 Timothy 3.6 tells us that the condemnation of the devil was for his pride. Isaiah tells us the words, I will be like the Most High. Pride. 
thinking too highly of himself and the exalted office that he already had of being the anointed cherub of God. And he and the angels that sinned with him, by rebelling against their position that God had given them, were cast out of heaven. God spared them not. They were thrown out of heaven as their place of purpose and their place of work. They could come back from time to time to be called in question by the Most High for what they had been up to in the earth, because Job chapter 1 and 2 tells us that. God spared them not. He cast them down to hell. They are, they are as sure to go to hell as you are to be glorified. Romans chapter 8 uses the past tense of glorified to describe your glorification. And they're not in the lake of fire to stay there yet. They're going to be there. You had it read to you from Revelation chapter 20 and verse 10 by Michael. But it's as good as done because God's judgment is upon them. God spared them not, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved unto judgment, and that judgment is a judgment that's coming, and they know about it. See, in heaven, people know things better than on earth. That's why Moses and Elijah came and could say something encouraging to Lord Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration that Peter didn't do with James and John that I taught you last Sunday. The angels know better. When the the fallen angels, the devils, were on earth, they would run and worship the Lord Jesus Christ. Why didn't men run and worship the Lord Jesus Christ? Because men didn't know Him like the angels knew Him. They knew He was the Son of God. They, They would say as they laid on the ground in some person that they had taken possession of, We know Thee who Thou art, Thou Holy One of God. Why don't we? Why don't men? I hope we do here in this assembly. We know thee who thou art. Thou art the Holy One of God. Art thou come to torment us before the time? See, they know there is a time coming. They are reserved in chains for that time in which they will be tormented forever and ever in the lake of fire. They know it all. I mean, about their judgment. It's too bad they don't know about repentance because they have none. And they don't repent. They continue to work against the Lord Jesus Christ. And the wrath just continues to rise and rise and rise. And when it falls upon the devil and his angels, and it falls upon this world, it will consume all in its way. If God spared not, those angels are greater in power and might than us by a long ways. You know, you open a history book, and you can read about the impeachment of Richard Nixon, the President of the United States of America. Somebody gets fired, your general manager, a vice president, an EVP at your place of employment gets, gets fired. And oh, there's memos flying back and forth and everybody's at the water, water cooler talking about some superior or some senior officer of your company being fired. Oh, please spare me the waste of my eardrums. Why in the world would you even care? Somebody retires from a baseball team. Some football coach quits or moves to another team. Oh, it's all the buzz. What about the buzz of this event? Why isn't this event mentioned anywhere? These beings are far greater in power and glory and intelligence than we are. They are closer to God. They had a sin. It was just pride. Listen, it's American pride. Aren't we supposed to be proud of American pride? God hates pride. 
Humble yourselves and be a servant. They didn't want to be the anointed cherub and the angels of God. They wanted to be like the Most High. God threw them out of heaven, consigned them to chains. They are reserved to the great day of judgment and they'll be burned up and they know their torment is coming and they get to think about it every day. That's verse 4. No one wants to talk about it. It's very real. How many millions? We don't know. We just know it's millions. A legion could be in one man. What is your name? Jesus said. I love our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, there's a devil, a whole host of devils in this man who's worshiping the Lord Jesus. He's naked. He's lived in the cemetery. Jesus said, what's your name? My name is Legion, for we are many in one man. You know, we could talk about this for a long time, and it's not necessary. I just hope that you'll think about it. No history book is going to tell you about this event. You know, I don't even think that the history books at Christian universities include this event. But if you really want to talk about world history, there's something that took place before the world was formed in Genesis chapter 1, and it's in 2 Peter 2.4, and it's an enormous event. And Peter is pulling it forward for us. See, he knows that you already know this. Where did the devils come from? Where did the fallen angels come from? Why are there elect and holy angels, and there are fallen and sinful angels called devils? Peter knows all that, but he's bringing it forward because we need the reminder that there is a God of judgment that when someone stands up and opposes the God of heaven, their creator, there are serious consequences to pay and those words do not do justice to what is coming. They are going to be tormented day and night forever and ever in the lake of fire for pride and ambition. Are these false teachers that are throughout this second chapter and throughout Jude guilty of pride and ambition? Through covetousness, they will with feigned words make merchandise of you. Great swelling words of vanity, having men's persons in admiration. You've got to read both chapters if you want to understand either one of them. They are full of pride and ambition, and they are going down as surely as the angels went down. So we come to verse 5. And, here's the second example of judgment, and spared not the old world. You know, there's been a couple of worlds. The first world lasted for 1,656 years, and then was overthrown by water. And spared not the old world, and that's all of its inhabitants. Brother Newell read those verses to us from Genesis chapters 6 and 7. But saved Noah, the eighth person, that's meaning there were seven others saved, a preacher of righteousness, very different from ministers, uh, false teachers, false prophets, and ministers of unrighteousness. A preacher of righteousness bringing in the flood upon the world of the ungodly. So it started in heaven, where God showed His judgment on His enemies, and then it came to earth 4,500 years ago. He drowned the place. He suffocated it. Every person. It didn't matter that you were a child. I can't believe the nonsense that I have to read every day that if a child dies in an accident or a child dies in the event or a child dies in a bombing that it's more important than an adult dying by an accident or by a bombing or whatever. It's just the turned upside down mentality of a modern person looking at the world. 
God doesn't make any distinction like that whatsoever, ever. They all suffocated. You know, in my younger days, there's a sermon preached on this subject that has this noise in it, in the recording. And you say, what was that noise? That's the noise of a waterlogged baby bumping up against the ark. Get real. I'm going to be real. I've always been real. This is the Bible. This is the way it's supposed to be preached. The event of verse 5 is a very real event. It's not to be covered up with pretty pictures. It's not to be covered up with all the emphasis on animals walking two by two up a plank into the ark. I don't care if there were two giraffes in there. Yes, I know that God's Word says there were giraffes in there. But what matters is that God judged the world and Peter didn't bring it up for us to think about two giraffes making it onto the ark. And there was no lifeline hanging outside this ark that said, Smile, God loves you. No life ring that had a smiley face on it. This is the Word of God, brethren. But the Lord knoweth how to deliver the godly out of temptation. The Bible says that Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord, but what else did it say about Noah? It said that Noah was a perfect and a righteous man in his generation. Let's be those perfect and righteous men in our generation. Let's preach the Word of God real. Let's preach the truth. Let's live the truth. And let's recover the truth when we fail the truth. We're always in one or more of those categories. And I preached it to you in the first service, and I preach it to you again, because there's no perfect pastor, church, father, family person. And so we've got to realize we preach and believe the truth, and we live the truth, and we recover whenever we stray from the truth. And there's a very simple process for recovering. It is the confession of our sins and repentance of all evil, and getting back in the way of righteousness, and following what God has told us to do. Look at that fifth verse. You know, we could go on and on about it. God didn't care that you were in the first grade. God didn't care that you were in diapers. God didn't care that a mother was nursing. You should sit in your house and think about it. About the water rising until it comes over the threshold of your house and it comes in your house. From every direction, water is entering your house. You take the height of Mount Everest and divide it by the number of days that water fell on this earth, and it is rising a great distance every day. I live in a two-story house. That water would enter that first level, and it would force us rather quickly to get to the second level. And everywhere we look, there's water. Where else do we go? There's only one thought in you. I've got to go up. I've got to go up. And so you're up in the second floor. Then you're crawling out a window to get on the roof so that you can get up above that second floor. Then you're on the chimney, and you're gripping the top of the chimney, and you're trying to hold your wife. And I'm not exaggerating the case at all. I'm understating it, because I can't create in you the fear and the terror of the judgment of the Lord. And it's right here in this fifth verse for us to think about it. And there's no mention of the animals. What there is mention of is this, spared not. 
There was no sparing. There was no mercy. There was no pity. Bringing in the flood, that means it was of water upon the world of the ungodly. Lord, help us. This is the word of the Lord. This is part of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. He has saved us. He saved Noah. Remember what we learned on this past Sunday? Noah lived long before Jesus Christ. But through the forbearance of God, God was looking ahead to the legal sacrifice of Jesus Christ for the sins of Noah. And He's saving us from what's coming. Okay, we've got another judgment in verse 6. We could talk about the flood for some time. I hope that you will... You know, the Bible story books, there's just not enough emphasis on the water. You know, you maybe don't get too upset with me. Maybe you got to hold a child upside down and pour a little water in their nose. Don't tell me about a flannel graph lesson with two giraffes going up a ramp because I'm going to counter it with something like that. These are real events. Right. They're not taught in history books. They're ignored. The next chapter is going to say they are willfully ignorant of this event. Verse 6, And turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes. So what did Sodom look like when they were done? When the Lord was done with it and His angels of flaming fire and destruction? It was ashes. What did Gomorrah look like? Ashes. And turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes. Condemned them with an overthrow an overthrow of fire and brimstone, making them an example unto those that after should live ungodly. It was not a once in the history of the universe event. It was an example event that something like it's going to happen again and judgment like that is going to fall on everyone that lives ungodly. This is the word of the Lord. Where are you living ungodly? Where can we change our lives to live more godly? Every part of our lives. If we're married, it's our marriage relationship. If we're parents, it's our children. If we're children, it's our parents. It's our finances. It's our relationship with the church. It's everything. But there's two special sins that God takes note of, and they're sexual sins, and they are anti-government sins. Because that rebellion is part of the character of very depraved persons that are going to hell. Let's be on our guard for those two, and we're coming toward them. And turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes. What if you're a fourth grader? Yeah. You. You're sitting at your desk in Sodom. You've brought the teacher an apple. You got an A on your spelling test. What happened in Sodom? The steel legs of the desk melted as the child's legs melted. Have you ever heaped up a great heap of wood because you want to have a bonfire for your family? I mean, you just gather it for a long period of time and you have this mountain of wood and you can't wait. You want it to look like a blast furnace going up. By the way, Abraham, when he got up in the morning, he went out and saw him look like a blast furnace with the embers racing up into the sky. And after you have this bonfire with your family and you go to bed, you know, the embers keep on burning and you go out there in the morning and, wow, there ain't nothing left. There's only this little pile of ashes because all night long it continued to burn. It burned up the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. What kind of ungodliness were they guilty of? 
you know, gay Christians. There is no such thing. There are gay repentant, there are repentant gay that are Christians. They say that uh, Sodom and Gomorrah were judged by God because they weren't hospitable. They didn't, they didn't open the hotel doors for the angels that came. But the Bible tells us very different things. That they were exceeding great sinners before the Lord of heaven and they went after strange flesh because the angels came in the presence of male human bodies. They wanted to get those angels because they hadn't known them yet. Those guys hadn't been into their gay bars yet for them to know and so they wanted to know them and they were desperate to know them and they basically tried to tear Lot's house apart to get to those two men. But the God of heaven, the God that we worship in this church and the God that is hardly known anymore even in this nation of America burned up that city and all those men, their wives, their children, their puppy dogs and cats. God didn't care about the goldfish that got boiled instantaneously in a goldfish tank. And all you little doggy lovers, your dogs got torched like a hot dog, except there wasn't anything to eat. They got burned up. They were turned into ashes. And I'm not trying to make it worse than it is, but this is serious because Peter's bringing it up to tell you that the damnation that is not slumbering and the judgment that now of a long time is not lingering is for real. And there are these three examples. He turned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes. He condemned them with an overthrow. God showed His opinion of the Sodomites. Why are they called Sodomites? Where did the word Sodomite come from? But an inhabitant of Sodom that did what? They were homosexuals. Verse 7, And delivered just Lot. Now when it says just Lot, it doesn't mean that it delivered only Lot. The word just there is not being used as only because they also delivered Lot's wife and Lot's two daughters. The word just is being used there in the way that we understand it. He was a just and a righteous man. Lot was one of God's elect. God was forbearing the sins of Lot because of the future death of the Lord Jesus Christ, just like He was Abraham and Noah. And delivered just Lot, vexed with the filthy conversation of the wicked. The conversation there does not mean filthy joke-telling at the water cooler at a place of business. It means a manner of life, a lifestyle, a filthy, dirty, abominable, perverse lifestyle of the wicked of that city. Delivered just Lot. God saved Lot. Because down in verse 9, it's going to say, The Lord knoweth how to deliver the godly. Well, verse 7 is an example of another godly man. Yes, he was godly to a degree. But he compromised in his life. He took his family towards Sodom. He moved into Sodom. He let them go to Sodom schools. And he let three of his daughters marry three of the young men of the city of Sodom. That makes up the ten that Abraham begged for in order to preserve the city of Sodom, in order to preserve his nephew and family. But those three son-in-laws that married three of his daughters laughed him to scorn because of his compromise as a Christian of the Old Covenant. That's where the ten come from. Abraham quit when he got to ten because he thought he had it made. But when Lot went to get those three son-in-laws and their wives, his own daughters, they weren't interested. They had seen too much compromise in their lives. They had watched too much Sodom television, listened to too much Sodom radio. They'd been to all the Sodom stores and they shopped at the Sodom mall. They went to the Sodom high schools. Everything was Sodom. They laughed him to scorn. 
Your religion doesn't have any. There's no God in your religion like that that's going to burn us up. God delivered Lot, vexed with the filthy conversation of the wicked. Only a righteous man gets vexed with filthy, ungodly, unlawful deeds by sinners. And we want to be vexed, but we want to go beyond Lot. We don't just want to be vexed. We want to get away from what's vexing us. We want to avoid it and make a difference. We don't want to touch the unclean thing. We want to get away. Vexed. Do you remember in Ezekiel chapter 9? This is the church of God. In Ezekiel 9. God called the angels that had the care for the city of Jerusalem and told them to come to Him for a meeting with their Slaughter with their weapons of slaughter, their slaughter weapons. Then he called for an angel that had an inkhorn. And he told the angel with the inkhorn, Ezekiel 9 is short and easy. He told the angel with the inkhorn, go through the city of Jerusalem and find everyone that sighs, S-I-G-H-S, sighs and cries because of the wicked things that are done in that city, and mark them with your inkhorn. Put a mark on them. And then he told the angels with their weapons of mass destruction, their slaughter weapons, to go through the city and kill everyone that doesn't have that mark. That's Ezekiel 9. It's a wonderful family devotion. You could get something out like a sickle. Anybody have a sickle hanging in their garage? The old, the sigh? You got one? I, I don't anymore. You know, get some weapon out like that. Because Ezekiel 9 teaches us that those that were saved were those that were vexed. Those that were sighing and those that were crying for the abominations being done around us. And there are reasons for us to be sighing and for us to be crying in 2015 in America. The change that has happened in, in my little lifetime in the last 30 years is, is mind-boggling as this nation rushes toward the drain hole of the cesspool of ungodliness. But the Lord delivered Lot. He was vexed with the dirty conduct of the wicked. That's what filthy conversation means. And then in parentheses, for that righteous man, he was not only legally righteous, he, he was righteous enough that his conscience was smiting him at the junk that was going on around him, but he didn't have the courage to stand up and be a real man. He didn't have the courage to stand up and be a real father, a real husband, to tell his wife that she couldn't shop at the mall, to tell the girls that they had to be homeschooled, they couldn't go to the local high school, they couldn't, ha- they couldn't hang out at the mall, they couldn't have worldly friends from down the street. He didn't have that courage, but he knew it was wrong. He had got himself into a mess because he wanted to advance his family, and his family's income had gone up. They had a big house. They had lots of cars. The kids had four-wheelers. They went to the best schools. And how in the world do you tell your family that you're going to flush all that down the toilet and you're going to move out and, and take over a mobile home? How do you do that? Abraham could do it. Abraham said, family, pack up. Where are we going? I don't know. Well, how far is it going to be? Don't know that either. But it's going to be a long way, so get ready. And Abraham took off and did it. And you know, every one of us fathers had better be like that. Right. You say, well, I've made mistakes as a father, and the consequences of so. Every father in the Bible has made mistakes. So what do you do? 
Do you grovel in it? Do you let it overwhelm you? Do you let it beat you? We preach and believe the truth. We live the truth. And we recover the truth whenever we fail the truth. We repent. We clean up. We do what Eli should have done. But Eli didn't do. That righteous man dwelling among them. Notice what it says. Dwelling among them. See, that was the big problem for his life. He moved into the city of Sodom. He was dwelling among them in seeing and hearing the things he had to see. On, he didn't have to wait for television. It was at his front door. And the things that he heard that was going on at the gay bars in that town, they didn't wait to get to the bar. They were doing it in the streets. The city was given over to sodomy. As soon as two strangers appeared in that city, they were assaulted that night. The men of the city surrounded the house of Lot. You can read about it in Genesis 19. He vexed his righteous soul from day to day with their unlawful deeds. Those deeds weren't unlawful to the laws of Sodom. They were unlawful to the laws of God, and they were unlawful to the laws of nature. Sodomy is contrary to both. It is against the laws of God, and it is against the law of nature. Nature teaches us certain things. The Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians 11, nature teaches us that men should have short hair and women should have long hair. Nature teaches us that men should want to go to bed with a woman. The anatomical connection is pretty convenient. The anatomical lack of connection between two men is inconvenient. He saw their unlawful deeds. It was against God. It was against nature. Who cares about the laws of Sodom? And let me remind you about this. I don't care what the laws of this nation are, and God doesn't care what the laws of this nation are. Are your attitude, your position on every act of men, women, on everything that happens in life should be based on God's Word and secondarily, nature. Nature does teach us things. Verse 9, The Lord knoweth how to deliver the godly out of temptations. That is wonderful. There are elect and holy angels that were delivered out of verse 4. There is Noah and his family delivered out of verse 5. And Lot was delivered out of verse 6. The Lord knoweth how. He did it in all kinds of ways, didn't he? He came and told Noah, build an ark. He came and grabbed Lot by the hand and, and took him out of that city. He elected and preserved the holy angels and kept them back and held them from sinning with the devil and his angels. They are called elect. Therefore, God had some choice in preserving them in their state of holiness. God is able to deliver us. Are there other examples? I gave you one earlier today. When Nebuchadnezzar sent his armies and destroyed Jerusalem, did Jeremiah do okay? He did very well. The Lord knoweth how to deliver the godly. Did Joshua and Caleb do okay? The Lord knoweth how to deliver the godly. How about the destruction of the city of Jerusalem? Did the Christians save themselves from that destruction in 70 A.D.? The Lord knoweth how to deliver the ungodly. How did He deliver them? Jesus said, when you see the city of Jerusalem encompassed with armies, flee to the mountains and save yourself. Don't take the time to go back and get anything that's precious to you. Just get out of the city. The Lord knoweth how to deliver the godly. We could give more and more examples from the Bible that the Lord knows, but we have three right here in front of us. The Lord knoweth how to deliver the godly out of temptations. Those temptations, there are affliction and trials and punishments brought upon men by God. 
a severe or painful trial or experience, an affliction, a trial. The Bible uses the word that way in some cases. It's not a seduction or enticement to sin, like we often think of the word temptation, but it's a temptation of trouble and pain brought in your life. There's a number of Bible examples. About 12 of them are listed in in the outline. But look at the second half of verse 9. And to reserve the unjust under the day of judgment to be punished. To reserve them means they are not going to get away. There is no way to escape the judgment that is going to come upon them. They are called unjust versus Lot being called just. The unjust have no regard for God. There is no vexing. They have no regard for the laws of nature. But there are, these are unjust men and they are reserved in that ninth verse unto the day of judgment. Now, there are days of judgment that occur in this world, like 70 AD, or the raising of Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar's armies, or the flood that came, and then there is the great day of judgment that is coming, that is the focus here, the day of judgment, primarily, to be punished. They are reserved to it. They will not cancel their reservations. That is what's going to happen to them. And the Lord will bring that judgment upon them. He calls them the unjust. He calls those that are saved the godly. What we want to do is is take verse 9 away with us and every decision and choice that we make the remainder of this day and this next week until we come back into the sanctuary of God to be reminded again, let us choose to do what the godly would do and let us avoid what the unjust would do. What would the unjust do? Two sins are listed and they are pointed out as being chief offenses against God. But chiefly... But chiefly, oh, you mean the city, the uh, the sins of Sodom weren't all that you have under consideration here? No. But chiefly, when it says in the last part of verse 9 that God is able and will reserve the unjust unto the day of judgment to be punished, but chiefly, two categories of sins at the top of his list that he will judge are those that walk after the flesh in the lust of uncleanness and despise government. Two sins. The lust of the flesh of uncleanness is a broad category of sexual sins that includes sodomy, includes fornication, includes adultery, and I don't have time to chase all the Bible verses with you right now, but they're in the outline, and the outline is on the internet. And our website, it's a, it's a broad, large category of sexual sins. Look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, holding your hand. We're almost done. You can tell we're almost done. We're almost to the period. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, the will of God is being explained to the Thessalonians. Verse 3, for this is the will of God. It's wonderful to know the will of God. Verse chapter 5, it tells us that the will of God is giving thanks in everything. Verse 18 of chapter 5, it's wonderful to know the will of God. In 1 Thessalonians 4, 3, this is the will of God, even your sanctification. Here's how you can sanctify yourself and be holy. Abstain from fornication. Don't have sex with someone you're not married to. That every one of you should know how to possess his vessel in sanctification and honor. That's your body and your bodily parts that are involved in fornication. Not in the lust of concupiscence. That is sexual lust. Even as the Gentiles which know not God. That no man go beyond and defraud his brother in any matter. 
The context has already been set because that the Lord is the avenger of all such as we also have forewarned you and testified for God hath not called us unto uncleanness but unto holiness. There's one example from the New Testament of the use of the word uncleanness as a broad sexual category including fornication, including sodomy, including adultery, including pornography, including effeminacy, including everything that is unclean related to the sexual operation of your life and vessel. Now, what is the effect on our nation in the last 50 years of pulpit compromise? An explosion in uncleanness. But chiefly, them that walk after the flesh in the lust of uncleanness. Moral impurity, sexual fornication or filthiness, or an act of it. And it's used throughout the New Testament and the Old Testament. It's a broad sexual category designed to catch... There's another one like it in the Bible called filthiness. Both of them are designed to catch anything that is not scriptural in the way of sex. Even fornication defiles the human body. That is why in Hebrews 13.4 it says, Marriage is honorable in all and the bed undefiled. Sexual sins are unique. When a believer commits fornication with an unbeliever... When a man, in 1 Corinthians 6 is the passage I'm referring to, goes to a harlot, he connects himself who has the Holy Spirit dwelling within his body and ties his body up with a harlot. And 1 Corinthians 6 condemns it on that basis, verses 12 through 20. And we live in a whole generation of it. It's promoted through our media. It's talked about. It's, the, the laws have been totally relaxed against it. You know, from the days of branding an A on someone that committed adultery, or in the days when someone that conceived out of wedlock was just looked upon in a despicable way, things have changed drastically in 50, 60, 75 years in our nation, and it's a consequence of the pulpit and despised government. Civil government. You know, children, we grow up with a degree of respect toward our fathers. When we're little, they're big and strong. They know all the answers. They can fix the bike. They cut the grass. They're big and strong. They go to work. They come home. They do things that we can't do, and so we grow up and we have a a measure of respect for our fathers. The government at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue is farther away. And you don't like them taking your money. And you don't like them because of the people that write the news that you read putting a spin on it for their particular axe to grind. Nobody nobody reports the news accurately. They all report it with an agenda. And so each person goes to their particular source where they get the news presented to them in the way they like to hear it. And if you're going with a spirit of rebellion that you already hate what's in Washington, then there are plenty of people to fill your ears and your eyes with despising government. And you are on the list for God to burn up when He comes back. But chiefly, them that walk after the flesh in the lust of uncleanness and despise government. 
Peter is going to go on and explain the despising of government in the second half of verse 10 and then the next two verses. Then he's going to, he's going to go into the moral character of these false teachers and their followers in the verses that follow. But toward authority, they despise government. You know, as we leave today, we want to be convicted and convinced that God is coming back to judge this world because of His promise to do so. And it's going to be a judgment on the scale of the judgment of the angels, the judgment in the days of the flood, the judgment of the scale of what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities of the plain. We want to be like just Lot. We want to be like that righteous man, but we want to be better than that man. We want to separate more than that man did. And we want to look at two sins because of this sentence leading us to this conclusion, and that is sexual looseness of any kind. We have got to watch the things that we read, the things that we look at on the internet, the things that we look at on the television, any conversation that we have, the friends that you keep. Everything should be kept carefully guarding that there should be purity, sanctification in sexual matters, that all fornication is pressed away from us, that uncleanness is pushed away. I hate that. We've got to say those words, I hate that stuff. It's got to cause us grief. It's got to make us angry. And we've got to push it away and not pitch our tents toward it. In these church, in these mega churches around the country, this is not going to be preached at the television level. It's not going to be preached at the swimming suit level. It's not going to be preached at the beach level. It's not going to be pe- preached at the health club level. It's not going to be preached at that level. But we have to dress our women modestly. We have to keep our thoughts Restricted, the Bible tells us even to look on a woman or to lust after her beauty or to let her take her, take us with her eyes is all wrong. And so for the first two of these sins, we want to guard ourselves sexually and push it away. Not pitch our tents toward it. Not let it come into our homes. They will sneak it in everywhere they can. And they've been very effective at it over the last 50 years. There wasn't much fornication in Lassie. There wasn't much fornication in my three sons. There wasn't much fornication in Rin 1010. We need to take a stand for modest clothing, television, activities, and guard against fornication, uncleanness, sodomy, and all the rest of it that's wrapped up in that big word of the lust of the flesh of uncleanness. And then we've got to love our government. We've got to be thankful for them. We've got to pray for them. They are doing less than what we deserve. We deserve far worse than what they're doing. We want to pray. We want to intercede for them. We want to supplicate for them. We want to protect them. We don't want to allow anyone to tell jokes about our present president. I know the temptation is there to tell jokes. I have every temptation that anyone in here has on either one of these sins. But we have got to be thankful, and we have got to protect them, and we've got to speak reverently. We've got to give them honor. We've got to pay our taxes, and we should do it as unto the Lord. We should remember that they are ministers of God to us for good. They protect our right to have an assembly like this today to preach this subject matter today. They still protect us, and they will defend us, and they have defended There are lots of things happening, and it depends on what news source that you have chosen to read so that you get a slanted bias. And I want to warn all all of you, you know, if you go to to 
new sources that are slanted to give it to you the way that you want it, you are feeding a lust of pride and rebellion that God hates. They never report it honestly. Your reporters don't report it any more honestly than the liberal reporters report it. They report it with a grinding slant of twisting that knife to make us get upset and angry about government. We have such a blessing in this country of liberty and freedom, prosperity and peace. We can serve God like nobody else has ever been able to serve God. We have more free time. We have more of our income left to us. We have the total freedom to meet with brethren. We have the total freedom to assemble whenever we want to. We can declare anything from the Word of God. We should be the best Christians the world has ever seen because of our government. I can think of all the things that I dislike about what's happening as fast as you can think of them. I hope. But that doesn't justify any of it. What does the Bible say? When Peter, by the Holy Ghost, is getting down and dirty with us and coming after us to shake us about the judgment that is coming on this earth, he goes after sexual uncleanness and despising government, being disrespectful of civil authority and speaking evil of dignities. Let's oppose and fight temptation and sin in either one of those two directions. Let us be godly and let us be more godly than Lot was. Let us even be more godly than Noah was. And in the use of our vineyards, and in the use of anything that comes from a vineyard, let us be very careful and guarded with that because it got Noah into trouble as soon as he got off the ark. May the Lord bless us to realize that we should be living holy, sober, reverent lives in this world because He is coming to burn it up. Christianity is a serious religion. The gospel is a serious message of glad tidings and good things that Jesus Christ has done for us. And, and what makes what makes the crucifixion of Jesus Christ such a good and glorious thing is that it saves us from that wrath that is coming. The greater you understand the wrath that is coming against sin and sinners, the more Jesus Christ shines as our Savior. May we live for Him this week. Amen. Amen. Please stand with me.